This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Emrest, CPA with Parmelson Associates. So just like the title says, how much is my shop worth? It's a question I get asked a lot, whether they're talking about their own shop, someone else's shop, a shop that they're looking at buying. I feel like that there's a lot of misinformation and some common mistakes that people make when trying to get an idea of the value of their own shop or one that they're going to try to acquire. So today I want to go into the general idea on how almost all shops are bought and sold, what metrics we use, and more importantly, what can you do to drive the value of your shop up? Before we get into that, though, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. How do you win over younger customers? You let them see their repair in progress, rusty parts and all. You update them with live chats and invite them to pay with their phones. That's why you need to get shopware.com. As a shop owner, it's important to invest in the right tools to help your business grow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow, an endorsed Napa Auto Care program, is committed to helping the whole shop reach its full potential. Please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. So whether you're looking to buy a shop, sell a shop, or you just want to know how much your business is worth, it's important to understand what goes into valuating a shop and how they were bought and sold. So a little background of kind of where my knowledge comes in is obviously my firm only works with repair shops or 99.9% of our customers are repair shops. So on a monthly basis, I'm dealing with about 600 shops all across the country. At any given time, I have people buying shops. I have people selling shops. I have people expanding to other locations. So I don't think that there's very many people outside of, you know, a specialized broker that has been a part of as many deals as I have. Why that is important is because it's fine to read numbers in books. It's fine to kind of see people talking about the way that other people are doing it. But at the end of the day, the value of something is what someone's last paid for it. Um, You know, I, I give this kind of example a lot and a lot of things, but a great segue to this is you might see some rare little trinket on eBay, right? You've probably heard stories about this. So, I found this vase and someone's selling this on eBay for $10,000. The price of what someone is selling on eBay does not mean that's the value. That's how much they want for that. What is a lot more important is actually seeing what they've sold for on eBay. It's the exact same thing with the shop. If you have a shop that you're selling for a million dollars, it does not mean that your shop is worth a million dollars. It means that's what you want for it. Now, I'm accredited in, in business valuation. And so a couple of years ago, went through the process, took a lot of training, a lot of tests to get accredited in business valuation. And when you do this, you go down through and you learn lots of different ways of valuating different types of businesses. And it gave me a really cool insight because it's something that is always been something I've been curious about. And it was really cool to see how other industries work. There's a lot of industries out there that get sold as a multiple on their sales. There's a lot of industries that get sold based on any number of items. What you really need to understand when you value something is you need to understand the basic principles behind valuation, where the numbers come from, what kind of percentages you use, risk-free interest rates, a lot of other things to figure out what the value is. Now, where it kind of segues into what we're talking about today is I only do valuations for auto repair shops. 
I will not value a retirement home. I will not value a restaurant. I will not even value a car dealership because every single industries has specific kind of rules of thumb that they follow. And so for the auto repair industry, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you could value a shop. But the only way that shops are bought and sold right now is a multiple of your net income. Now, what I say the only way shops are bought and sold, I am being pretty literal about this because this is the only way that I've ever seen the value of a shop come up with. Now, there's people that just list it and pull a number out of their head, but I've never seen someone actually sell this in a liquidation method or discounted future cash flow or even cap rates. It's just never done. And so right now, the going rate for shops is about two and a half to three times the net income of a shop. Now, when you do this, you need to take probably the last three to five years and get an average. It almost never gets done just based on one year's of financials. So you want to kind of see, all right, what has this business been doing over the recent years? And what we're using there is we're using past performance of the shop to kind of estimate not only the current value, but really what will be the future value of this business. On the surface, this seems pretty simple, right? Okay, Hunt, I have a profit and loss. I'm fairly comfortable with my financials. I can just multiply this net income number, the average of the last three years, by two and a half to three times, and I'm done. So the number that you see at the bottom of your profit and loss statement is your net income. It's what you made for the business. But there's a number of things that need to be adjusted in order to get to a real number that we're going to use for this multiple. Now, before we get into this, I want to just kind of have, you know, take a step back there and tell you what this number is inclusive of and what this is not inclusive of, because a lot of people kind of get a little bit confused. So when you do this multiple and let's say that the multiple for my shop comes out at five hundred thousand dollars, three time multiple. So I'm going to sell my shop for five hundred thousand dollars. That means I'm going to sell my name, my customer list, my reputation all these intangible assets of my business. This also includes all of my equipment, my workforce. It does not generally include the real estate. That's something separate, but all of the physical tangible assets of your business. Now, there are some things that usually get added onto this. So if you have a loaner car fleet or even a couple of loaner cars, generally that is not inclusive of this multiple unless the loaner cars are just worth so small that it doesn't really make any sense. Generally, most shops that I deal with don't carry a lot of inventory, you know, fluid and filters, so a couple thousand dollars here or there. But if you have a large amount of inventory, that's also going to get added to the value of the business. You will see here that on the surface, all of this stuff is very simple, right? I do valuations. Obviously, I don't do them for free. I sell them. You know what? But I like to be open and honest about this. What I'm doing is not rocket science. Now, obviously, I've been doing this a long time, so I think it's a little bit easier than a normal person does. But there's some intricacies that you probably don't even know or aren't even aware of. And generally, it makes sense to pay a professional to do this stuff because if you're doing a deal for hundreds of thousands of dollars then a couple thousand dollars to spend on getting a really good number to be able to strongly advertise this business or back up an offer for a prospective business is generally money well spent. What I want to do here is I want to kind of talk about this and hopefully I'm giving you enough information so that you can maybe do some rough figures on your own financials. Um, Now, would I say use this episode to value your business that you're looking to sell to an outside party or key person? 
No, but if you're sitting here and you got a shop and you've always kind of wondered, hey, what have I built here? What is this really worth? So I think this should be extremely helpful for you to get a general idea. What we're going to do to start out with is we need to figure out what our net income is or just a net income. So what we need to do is we need to first calculate something called EBITDA. Now, a lot of people have heard the term EBITDA, but you might not understand what it is. But EBITDA is not actually a word. It's actually an acronym. So E-B-I-D-T-A sounds like EBITDA. So what that stands for is earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to add back a couple different expenses that are on your financial statements. And these are something that get adjusted every single time, no matter what. The other adjustments that we're going to talk about sometimes have no adjustments. They almost always do. But EBITDA is the only thing that always gets adjusted every single time. So interest is going to get added back. Why is interest getting added back? Because generally these are asset sales, which means that we're not assuming any of the business's liabilities or any of the business's interest obligations. So interest gets added back. It has nothing to do with the prospective buyer. It has nothing to do with you if you are the prospective buyer either. Next thing that gets added back is depreciation. Depreciation is always added back because depreciation is not actually a cash expense. So if you're looking at your financials right now, and your accountants made an adjustment for last year, you will see a line item on there called depreciation expense. This is just however much deduction we took for the larger fixed assets that you purchase over the years or maybe in previous years that are still depreciating. Either way, depreciation is sometimes higher, sometimes lower, but generally never exactly the same on what you're actually spending on this equipment and not actually a cash expense, so it always gets added back. So what does the T stand for? The T stands for taxes. And in most cases, there's not actually a large adjustment on businesses that I do. So most of my businesses are S corporations and the taxes are not paid on the corporate level. For most cases, they're paid on the personal level. The T in taxes is really only standing for income taxes paid. It is not meant to be an adjustment for personal property tax, even property tax, really only income tax. So if you're a C corporation and the business pays the taxes, then you probably have an ad back for this. If you're an S corporation, really the only thing that you could have is ad back for state income taxes that are paid on the corporate level. The last one on here is A, which is for amortization. Amortization is generally the same idea as depreciation, but amortization is something that you use to um, expense the cost of goodwill or a non-compete intangible assets that are always amortized over 15 years. So general idea there is if you buy a intangible asset for $150,000, you're going to see a $10,000 amortization expense every single year for the next 15 years. Now, if you notice, a lot of financials are set up so that depreciation, interest, taxes, and amortization are down on a line item called other expense. The, way, the reason a lot of people do this is all of those are, all, are treated a little bit differently when getting analyzed by not only outside parties, but bankers as well. And so a lot of times people like to put it down there to make it a little bit easier to run these numbers because essentially your EBITDA number would already be calculated above that line.
But either way, take a look at your financials. If you have those expenses, which I imagine you probably have at least one of them, add those back to your bottom line number. Now that we have our EBITDA number, we still need to do some more adjustments. I'm not going to go into an exhaustive list here because everyone is a little bit differently depending on who they hire, what they do, et cetera, et cetera. The first one, and arguably one of the larger adjustments that we make, has to do with officer wages. There's no bigger pet peeve of mine as when I'm looking at evaluation that someone else did, and officer wages are added back completely, 100% added back. Just saw one the other day, the officer was paying himself a lot, and if you lost, listened to my uh, episode on fair and reasonable compensation, way too much money for an S-corp. But he was paying his owner about $180,000. And on the valuation that their accountant did, they added back the full $180,000. Now, some people might agree with that right off the bat. Well, hey, that's money to the owner, so why is that any different than profit? But what we need to do is we're not adding back our officer wages. We are adjusting officer wages to fair market value. What I mean by that is, is this officer paid more or less than what he's really doing? Now, an example of this would be, let's say, and this one we're talking about here, where the officer was making $180,000 a year. So what I did is I asked my client and some of the stuff he was able to answer, some of the stuff he needed to you know, talk to the uh, seller of the business. But I said, what does this officer do? So he says, well, obviously, you know, he's kind of the general manager. It's a smaller store and he's also the service advisor. So he kind of has double duty roles and and kind of runs all of that stuff. A lot of people would probably call that a service manager. He was also doing some of the bookkeeping and obviously a lot of other, you know, um, administrative roles that go along with being the owner of a small business. So I said, great, makes sense. And then what I asked my client is I said, okay, obviously when you go and buy this business, you're not going to keep the old owner on as the service advisor. I've seen it happen. Not very common though, right? As much as you love the shop routine that you have now, I'll tell you that switching to a cloud-based shop management system will pay off in more ways than you can imagine. Not only will you let go of bad habits that are costing you money, you'll free up more time for your techs to fix more cars. Your quotes will be quicker and more accurate and you'll make more money per part than you ever did before. We all know that time is money. When you streamline your day, you waste less time on repetitive brain drains. Start fresh by going to your favorite browser and looking up GetShopware.com. The orange Book a Demo button will set you on a journey for more profit and less stress. You'll never look back. Check it out at GetShopware.com. As a shop owner, it's important to invest in the right tools to help your business grow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow, an endorsed Napa Auto Care coaching and marketing program, is committed to helping the whole shop reach its full potential by utilizing their industry-leading learning management system. Repair Shop of Tomorrow have produced over 50 learning modules to provide continuing education for shop owners, service advisors, and technicians. Their learning management system allows all employees to learn exactly what the owner is learning on their own time. Training modules such as Repair Order Workflow, Advisor Huddle, Business Flow Chart, and Driving Profitability helps ensure everyone in the shop knows what the right looks like and understand their responsibilities inside the organization. When the team is all operating with the same playbook, the results are remarkable. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. 
So I said, what are you going to have to pay his replacement? And so I asked my client about this and he says, well, you know what? I will probably take one of my service advisors from my current location and move her over there. Perfect. How much does that service advisor make? About $100,000 a year. What we had to begin with was we had an ad back of $180,000, but we know that it's going to take us $100,000 to replace that position. So now the net difference is only $80,000. It's not fair to add back all of that officer's wages because that's assuming that they do absolutely nothing with the business, which is generally almost never true. What we're going to add back is we're going to add back the difference between what they're getting paid and what their replacement or the future replacement is going to make. Sometimes there ends up being no adjustment at all. Great example of that would be if, again, the owner is acting as a service advisor. And let's say that she is a service advisor. She's one that answers the phone and she's taken $80,000 out. Now, in this situation, if I was going to buy her business and I was going to replace her with someone that's making $80,000 a year, then we have no adjustment whatsoever. The $80,000 is on there for officer compensation. Essentially, that would go away, get replaced with $80,000 of service advisor pay. So in the end of the day, it's a wash. Now, every once in a while, we have kind of the opposite thing. We have an officer that takes $10,000 out of the business, and they're the service advisor and also one of the part-time technicians. You know, if you had a net income that was showing $90,000, That might look really good, but when you figure out that that officer is not being paid fairly, almost all that profit will end up going away. So officers' wages do not need to be added back. They do not need to be subtracted. What they need to do is they need to be adjusted for fair market value. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but when I say officers' wages, that's going to be the officer, that's going to be their spouse, that's going to be their kids, that's going to be family members. So when I ask about officer compensation, I also ask about their spouse. Does their spouse work in the business? Yes or no. What are they doing? How much are they getting paid? A lot of times we have a situation where the officer is getting severely overpaid and the spouse is getting severely underpaid. Not necessarily a bad idea because there's ways that you can maximize payroll taxes and limit the amount that you're paying, but something that needs to be taken into consideration. Another thing is, is there no-show jobs? Do you have kids, grandkids on payroll that aren't actually showing up to the business? What you're really trying to do here is you're trying to get the fair market value of what they're making, which is also kind of recreating what your payroll is going to look like after you take over the business. So make sure that we're adjusting those wages. Make sure that we're getting paid a fair amount um, and getting rid of anyone that has no-show jobs, no-show wages. So the next thing on here that kind of goes hand to hand has to do with a rent adjustment. What we do on a rent adjustment is we're, again, adjusting rent to fair market value. Now, if someone is renting from an outside party, you know, just a regular landlord, unrelated, then there's usually almost no rent adjustment unless they moved over the period that we're kind of analyzing here. But where we generally have to make an adjustment is for people that are renting from themselves. So a lot of shops that are set up correctly have the real estate owned in a separate entity than their operating business. And at some point, they figured out how much they are paying themselves in rent. A lot of times, it's just a little bit more than whatever their mortgage payment is. Maybe they've kept it that way for 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, who knows. But a lot of times, it's not taken into consideration, are you paying yourself a fair rent amount? 
And so what we do on this one is sometimes we have to get a real estate agent involved because it's so off. They have no idea where to even start. And they get kind of an analysis, a rental analysis from a real estate agent that says, you know what, kind of going rate for your area is about $135 a square foot. You got 10,000 square foot. So your monthly rent is going to be this. Great. Now we have that number. Other times it's already been agreed upon. Hey, I'm going to sell to my general manager. You know, I need to come up with the value of my business. I'm okay on rent. I'm going to charge him $9,000 a month for the next five years, you know, on this lease. Fair market value kind of comes less into play there because they already have an agreed upon amount. He's agreed to accept it. This buyer has agreed to pay it. So everyone's on the same page. Now, if that is twice of what he was paying himself for the last three years in rent, then there's obviously going to be a subtraction on the financials. Now, sometimes I see the opposite, you know, especially on C corporations where they're trying to get some money out of the business. Sometimes people are paying themselves $200,000, $300,000 a year in rent when fair market value of that may be a fraction of that. So in a situation like that, the net income is actually getting understated because of this overinflated rental amount. So in that situation, we would have an add back for rent. So the big idea here on this one is figure out what a fair rent amount is, and that is going to be your adjustment. Now, a quick tip here is if you're looking at your shop's financials right now and you're paying yourself $5,000 a month and you don't think that that's anywhere close to accurate and it's more, it needs to be closer to $9,000, then change that. Change that in your business right now because maybe your business can't afford to pay yourself fair market value rent. And if it can't afford to pay yourself fair market value rent, the next owner, someone that you're trying to sell this to, will not either. Build this business to sell, build this business to be able to support itself and be able to prove over a number of years that it can do this for you so it can do this for someone else. So adjust that now. Last quick tip on here, and this is, you know, someone's going to yell at me because this does not really kind of uh, jive everywhere depending on where you are. But generally, I use a 10% estimate for rent. And what I mean by that is, let's say that your building is worth a million dollars. Because a lot of people know what the real estate is worth, you know, on a sale amount, not necessarily a rent. So if your building is worth a million dollars, the 10% rule would mean that your annual rental expense or your annual rental income should be $100,000, i.e. 10% of a million. The reason that I use that is I kind of use that as a sanity check. Right. And so I can use that the opposite way. So if I look at a shop and I say, all right, you're paying yourself one hundred thousand dollars rent. You know, is that fair market value? Well, I have no idea, Hunt. I never really thought about that way. So what I usually do is I pose this question back to them. I say, all right, well, you're paying yourself about one hundred thousand dollars a year in rent, which means that your building should be worth around a million dollars. Now, it doesn't mean it's not worth eight hundred or one point two million. But is that kind of in the ballpark of where you are? And did they say, yeah, you know what? That seems pretty fair. Neighbor sold for kind of similar to that. His is a little bit bigger. He got a little bit more money. So yeah, I think that sounds about right. Where that doesn't sound right and what commonly happens is they say, no way. You know, my property tax appraisal on this property alone is $2.2 million. So I know my, biz, uh, my building is actually worth even more than that. Then that's where that 10% rule, you know, is not going to give me a hard number, but I'm going to say, yeah, we're not even close here. We need to do some more research and figure out what that fair rent amount really is because doing some rough math on here, this just does not pass the smell test.
Officer wages, rent, we're adjusting those to fair market value, whether that's an add back or a subtraction. So next thing we get on here is a category that we call discretionary expenses. So what are discretionary expenses? Dictionary definition of discretionary is something that you choose to do, not something that you have to do. Another word for this would be personal expenses, right? Because again, it's not something that you have to do. It's something that you decided to do. Um, Another thing that discretionary expenses are is, you know, obviously personal expenses, but also just stuff that you choose to do. So stuff like meals and entertainment, I always add back. Hey, it's a great thing to do for the team. Not essential. Something that you choose to do. It's usually not a ton of money. And a lot of times some of these meals might not be your team. They could be board meetings with your spouse, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what happens here. Another thing that I generally add back for discretionary would be charitable contributions. Again, great that you're doing that. Not something that you need to do. Um, And then another big one that I see a lot on here is travel. You know, a lot of people are traveling. Is it for training? Is it for conferences? Is it for something quasi business related? Who knows? But travel almost always gets added back completely because, again, it's something that you choose to do, but you don't need to travel for a business that is all run in one location. So almost always adding back those things. Now, obviously, if you're running personal parts down through this, not that you ever would. If you're running personal utilities down through your business, not that you ever would. Personal internet, personal cell phone, personal car repairs, personal gas. You get the idea here, right? Anything. And one thing that I always give people as a tip is, all right, if you were to go away, what expenses would go away with it? Anything that's on there means it's discretionary or what we're going to talk about here in the next section, non-recurring expenses. So discretionary expenses are something that you choose to do, something that you do not have to do. Non-recurring expenses are, again, something that we don't expect in the future, but for a different reason. So as the name kind of alludes here, non-recurring expenses are something that we generally don't expect to happen very commonly or hopefully ever again. The most common non-recurring expenses that I see is also income. So like, let's say that you sell a vehicle, right? You had a shop vehicle, you ran it for five years, you sold it. On your financials, you might see gain on a sale of asset. It's not your core business. It's not something that's going to happen every single year. So that's actually get subtracted out of your income. Uh, Things like lawsuits. Lawsuits are going to get added back. Maybe you had a lawsuit. Maybe you had an OSHA violation. Hopefully never happens again. Had to pay $15,000 for the fine, the legal fees, anything that goes along with it. That stuff's going to be added back. Audits. You know, a lot of times we see sales tax audits. Hey, the state, the county caught you. You had to pay them $15,000 to go away. That's going to get added back. The last kind of big one that I also see a lot would be large expenditures that are expensed off. So commonly, if you buy or if you're doing some major renovations to your waiting area, your bathroom, your shop, whatever it might happen, you know, maybe you spend thirty, thirty five thousand dollars $35,000. All of it qualifies as an expense. And so it's obviously going to be deducted. But if you look at those financials, that year of repairs and maintenance really sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, general year, we're seeing the shop spend about seven to $9,000 on repairs and maintenance. And I see 42,500 in one year of financials. That's going to set off kind of a red flag to me of saying, hey, something happened here. All right, we did a major renovation. I'm not expecting those kind of expenses in the future. And so I would adjust that out. 
So if we, you know, calculate EBITDA, do the ad backs there, adjust our financials for officer wages, fair market value rent, discretionary expenses, and non-recurring expenses, now we have an adjusted EBITDA number. Realistically, another way to think about this number that we now calculated is how much money could the owner of a business strip out if they really kind of got this down to the core? And this is going to be the foundation of what we take this multiple. And so let's say we have uh, 2019 is going to be 100,000, 2020 was 150, 2021 was uh, $200,000. So we have 100, 150, $200,000 in this adjusted EBITDA number. If I do the math on that one, the average of those years is going to be $150,000. So if I take, you know, two and a half to three times that, I now come up with the value of this business. So it's worth somewhere between $375,000 and $450,000, right? Two and a half on the low side, three times on the high side. Now, what gets you on the lower side of the range? What gets you on the higher side of the range? The range is often used to adjust for the desirableness of a business. And so things that would get you on the lower end of the range are old equipment, maybe not the best workforce, people getting ready to retire on the other end of the spectrum, maybe really green and not very experienced, Um, a distress sale, something where the business owner needs to get out, or anything that kind of makes this a little bit less desirable to own, operate, and, you know, ultimately take over. Now, what things gets what gets people on the higher end of the range is going to be positive trends in the business. Hey, the business is growing 20% year over year for the last five years. They have a really strong workforce. A lot of you know great employees have been around a long time. Uh, new equipment, good reputation, any number of things you know can kind of drive up the business. But this is kind of the of where you know, the opinion comes in here, right? The net income, the adjusted net income, while has, you know, a little bit of arguments there, is pretty cut and dry. It's pretty black and white there for the most part. You know, the multiple is where people will argue of where, you know, should be, should it be higher, should it be lower? And obviously that's where the negotiations happen. Now, 2.5 to three times is a general range. And most of the stuff that we've been seeing nowadays is falling closer to the three times multiple, but I've seen deals at a four, four time multiple, five time multiple. Not very common at all, right? Usually most of those are unique circumstances. Generally, when it goes outside the range, we see it a little bit outside, you know, 3.2, 3.5. The reason is maybe there's one year in there that's kind of pulling it down that really wasn't representative of what the business is doing. I also sometimes see this on the lower side of it, below two and a half, but that's really, really rare, especially nowadays. Uh, The market for shops has been really, really good. And one of the things that I want to kind of talk about quickly is who's going to buy this, right? So two and a half to three times range is a very fair multiple for, you know, a regular person going to buy a shop, going to expand to multi-locations, selling to a key employee. Now, lately, you know, I've kind of alluded this in other episodes, we've been seeing private equity come into this industry. So private equity firms looking to buy independently owned auto repair shops. Some of these people are throwing out some crazy numbers like five, six, seven, eight times multiples. Just really, really wild stuff that probably before two years ago, almost never saw. But over the last two years has become more and more common. If you have one of these people approach you, I always tell people if you're in a position, you're thinking about selling, it never hurts to have a talk. 
But, you know, if they come back and they give you this crazy high multiple on it, don't be surprised. It's kind of what they do. I'm not sure exactly why, but it's kind of thrown the market off a little bit. Now, the good thing about that is that's kind of brought up the entire value of the market. And so, like I said before, we're seeing most things sell very close to that three times multiple. Last kind of point here I wanted to hammer on before we got into ways to increase value and things that don't increase value is just talking about how there's different opinions on valuations. This method is what I feel, you know, the best one out there to value shops, but it's just my opinion on it. At the end of the day, your shop is worth what someone's willing to pay for it, right? And depending on what someone has or what their intentions are, there's a lot of different ways to argue this, right? You can just look at officer wages, rent adjustment, discretionary, non-recurring, and there's ways that you could argue that to be higher or lower than you want it. Right. So if I'm valuating my shop that I'm selling and I, you know, in an owner operator, I'm making one hundred thousand dollars a year and I'm selling, I have a vested interest to try and argue that I had no involvement in that business. Hey, I don't do anything here. I don't really need to show up. So I'm adding this all back. Now, if I am someone coming in to buy this business, I have the opposite incentive. Hey, you know what? I don't believe Hunt. I think he's still on the counter. And I think that we actually need to have a negative adjustment for this because he's getting underpaid. Same thing for rent. Same thing for discretionary expenses. Depending on what side you're arguing, you really have kind of inverse uh, you know, goals here or what you're trying to do with the overall price. Whenever I look at evaluation, I always take it with a grain of salt and also realize, all right, who was doing this? Was it a third party? Was it the seller's account? Was it the buyer's accountant? Et cetera, et cetera. To wrap up here, I want to hit on a couple things, you know, a couple quick tips that you can take home. Um, some of these should have been clear already, but ways to increase the value of the business and what you can be doing or worrying about today. So just like we were talking about right there, probably the number one variable that I see in valuating businesses is owner involvement. The best way to increase the value of your business while technically not even increasing the profit whatsoever is to reduce your involvement in the business. By the time that you sell the business, I want you to be an owner. I want you to be invested in your team, but I want you to be redundant. You need to have a service advisor. You need to have a service advisor or general manager that has some roles and responsibilities to essentially limit your involvement. Not only is that going to drive up the overall you know, dollars and cents value of your business, it's also going to make this a lot more attractive to a prospective buyer. People want to buy a business. They don't want to buy a high paying job. Think about if you're going to buy something else, would you rather buy something where you could sign some paperwork, collect some check and don't ever have to show up? Or would you like to buy something where you have to go there every single day, work 60 hours a week in order to make a living on it? People want a business, not a job here. Reduce your time in a business. Try and take a step back. Not only going to make you happier, but also going to make you more money in the long run. Another thing on here, and again, not that anyone does this, but limit personal expenses that are running through the business, especially if you're looking to sell in the next couple of years. Now, we talked about before, whenever we're evaluating business, we are adding back personal expenses, discretionary expenses, stuff that does not belong on a business. When we're doing evaluation, obviously, some of that stuff gets taken into consideration. And it's not surprising to know that this stuff is going on and is very common practice. However, do you think that it would be easier for you to argue to a prospective buyer that you have $20,000 a year of personal or discretionary expenses or you have $140,000 a year in discretionary or personal expenses? 
Obviously, it's going to be a lot easier to argue only 20,000. It sounds reasonable. You know what? It's not a huge dollar amount. I'm going to take this person's word for it. However, if you're trying to argue that there's a massive amount of personal expenses and maybe enough to flip your financials from a loss to a profit, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny put on that one. And if I'm the prospective buyer, I'm probably not going to use that full ad back. You know, I don't trust this person. I, I can't really add up all the math that they're talking about. It's running through here. So I'm doing a just myself of like 70,000. I just don't believe that that much stuff is running through there. Right. So don't open yourself up to the scrutiny. Make sure that it's as clean as we can possibly get it. Doesn't need to be squeaky clean with nothing, but let's try to limit it as much as we can so that we avoid questions and issues when going to, you know, the selling table. Last thing on here to ways to increase value. Obviously, this one should be a given, but drive profit. A lot of people kind of get too caught up in adjustments, ad backs. At the end of the day, the core of your value is made up from profit. So you need to be hyper-focused, again, especially if you're looking to sell in the short term, on driving that profit any way that you possibly can. Now, things that don't increase value, you know, and, and there's two big ones on here that I want to talk about. The first one is driving sales. As you've probably realized, we have not talked about sales at all for this entire episode. Sales, you know, are looked at for trends on where they are, if they're going up or down, because that kind of shows the overall uh, business. But sales don't actually go into the valuation calculation whatsoever. Would you rather have a shop that does a million dollars a year and makes a hundred thousand dollar profit or two million dollars a year and makes a hundred thousand dollar profit? Honestly, you'd probably rather have the smaller one because you're doing less work and making more money. But at the end of the day, these methods would come up with the same exact value for those two different businesses. At the end of the day, profit is what matters. Profit pays the bills, not sales. Another thing that you know doesn't increase value, we'll say dollar for dollar, is new equipment. Right. So let's say that you go down through and you evaluate your business and it's worth $500,000. If I go and I buy an alignment rack right now, and I turn around and I want to sell this business here in the fall or maybe the wintertime, you know, six months from now, I am not getting $100,000 above what my valuation came in just to make up for that alignment rack. Now, there are unique situations where if you do buy a large piece of equipment, you know, that can be kind of tacked onto the price, but it's never dollar for dollar. It's always going to be a reduced amount. You know, and obviously, I'm not telling you to have old equipment here because that could affect your multiple but if you're thinking about selling over the next three, five years, I'd probably also take that into consideration when updating and buying equipment. Now, don't have stuff out there that's unsafe, stuff out there making your you know, employee's life miserable, but you don't need to have the latest and greatest, the shiniest, because at the end of the day, it's not going to pay for itself and it's not going to increase the value more than what you're paying for it. I hope that this kind of uh, maybe demystified some things, hopefully gave you some tips on being able to go out and get a general idea on what your business is currently worth. Hopefully it's more than you thought. If it's less than your thought, now you know some ways to try to increase it, what you can do to tweak it, and hopefully make this as big and as strong and successful as you possibly want. Hope this was helpful for you. As always, please share with friends, anyone that you think could get value out of this. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. Link for that up in the show notes. So thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on aftermarketradionetwork.com. 
and on your favorite podcast listening app. So thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.